Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Tess Gerritsen, interviewed live by author S.J. Watson at the 2022 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with a master of the crime fiction genre. introduction do you need Tess Gerritsen? Oh. <laughs> I'm sure everyone in here knows exactly. I live you're. in the same state as Stephen King, that's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> that's not your claim to fame, is it? Um, you've written for over 30 years, and that's, I stopped counting at 30 books. Do you know how many books you've written? I think it's about 31 now. Okay. Yeah. You're multiple award-winning and mega-selling, I think that's fair to say. And according to the Chicago Tribune, there's a quote on your website, she has an imagination that allows her to conjure up depths of human behaviour so dark and frightening that she makes Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft seem like goody two-shoes. <laughs> so um, that may well be true. I don't know whether you think that is true. I think it is true, but uh, I, I would say that it's because of my mother. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I grew up with a mom who didn't speak very much English, but what she did love and understand was the American horror film. Uh-huh. So I grew up being taken to horror films all my childhood, and I think that that told me that that was the height of entertainment, which is to make <laughs> your audience scream. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that was a that was a very good uh, beginning for a thriller mm-hmm. writer is to is to be a child who um, who loves being scared in movie theaters. Yes. Yeah. I was scared by the. Um... Anyway, we won't go into that. It was, it was called The Rescuers. It was a cartoon. It was the last thing you should be scared of. Does anyone, does anyone know it? It's the least scary thing ever. And I, I was about six. I was terrified. So make of that what you will. Um, I was going to say that that quote may well be true, but you're also one of the kindest and nicest people I've ever met. And so in the world, full stop, but certainly in the world of publishing. And, uh, and you, you may or may not know that Tess sort of took me under her wing when my first book came out. You one of the first readers of Before I Go to Sleep said some very kind things about it. I, I still remember I was in a hotel room and Selena Walker, your mm. editor, said, would you read this manuscript? It was still in manuscript form. It wasn't in even a galley form. And I remember, um, I think I read it, in, I devoured it in one night. And the first thing I said to Selena was, are you sure a man wrote this? <laughs> it, you had captured the, the, the feminine voice so well that I, I was astonished. Um, but no, I, that was, sometimes you come across a book and you just think this author deserves worldwide attention. And you did, you got it. Well, so. that's very kind, but we're not here to talk about it. <laughs> Um, you're, you're also, you have the, you're, the, you're now my mom's second favourite writer, so... My mom's second favourite writer, Tess Garrison. <laughs> um, can we just talk about your career before we get onto the new book, um, Listen to Me? Um, you debuted in 1987, I think, is that right? With a romantic thriller called Call After Midnight. Who were you then? Tell us who Tess, the fledgling writer, was. I was a, uh, a practising medical doctor. I was a, a new mum, and um, I like to say that my career I owe to my first child for giving me a chance to go on maternity leave from the <laughs> hospital and also because he slept long hours and every time he'd take a nap I'd be sitting at my desk and I could write another paragraph. 
So it was, uh, yeah, that was where I was. I mean, it was like juggling all these things and those of us who have multiple responsibilities but also want to be a writer. Uh, we learned to juggle, um, especially those, I think women in, in particular, uh, we learned to write at our kitchen tables. And um, that, so that's what I was. Back then, um, as you mentioned, it was a romantic thriller uh, for Harlequin. <laughs> and I, I often find that um, people turn their noses up at romance, mm. but I found it a really good way to get into the writing, just that writing mindset, because romances are really all about personality and conflict and character. Mm. And that, to me, is still the number one thing for any book, whether it's mm. a thriller or a horror novel. It's, um, it's character and personality. Yeah. So, so writing was something that you wanted to do for a long time at that point? Or, yes. Or, or was it literally just, oh, I've got unintentionally, what do I do to fill the hours? <laughs> no, um, I wanted to be a writer when I was seven years old. Um, when, you know, American uh, girls, a lot of us read Nancy Drew when we're children. I don't know if it's very popular here, but Nancy Drew was a, a in the fictional world, she's an 18-year-old detective. Uh, very independent, she drives a car, she has a boyfriend. Um, she was every eight-year-old dream uh, person that we, we wanted to grow up to be. Mm. So um, I told my father I want to write stories just like Nancy Drew, and he said, that's no way to make a living. <laughs> so he encouraged me to go into sciences. And um, I loved medicine anyway, I, loved, I was interested in biology. So I took this little detour to medical school. Um, but I always knew I was going to come back to writing there's something about the age of seven or eight, uh, particularly for female authors that I know. A lot of us self-identify as storytellers about that age. Mm. In fact, my own granddaughter, who's eight years old, is writing her first book right now. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, just as, as an aside, I said, what's your book about? And she said, it's about um, a woman who kidnaps this little boy. <laughs> and I said, what happened? What does she do to them? And, and she said, she eats them and she leaves her arms and legs lying around. Right. And so she's going to be sitting here in 20, 20 years' time. Well, the, the best thing about it was that um, a day later I, I asked her, how's the book going? She's by that time on chapter three. And she said, um, I decided that she's just going to make them slaves. And I said, what, hap what happened to the arms and legs? And she goes... I realized that was too much. <laughs> so at eight years old, she's already exerting editorial uh, yeah, con uh, considerations. Anyway, but the, at the seven, the seven eight-year-old period of children, we learn how to hold mm. a pen, we learn how to write, we learn how to And that's a pretty fertile time for the Yeah, it's a, it's a fertile time. And as long as we as parents encourage that, mm. um, I think that um, there are a lot of budding authors down there right now below the age of 10. So welcome to your new competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but then you wrote a medical thriller called Harvest. And that was uh, 11 years later, no, 90, 1996, is that right? Yes, yes, that was... Um, so that's maths nine years later. That was my 10th book. Yeah. Uh, so I had been writing romantic suspense novels and um, really enjoying it. I mean, I love the genre, which is why, you know, you write what you love to read. Mm. Um, but then I had a conversation with a homicide detective who had been traveling in Russia. And he said, children were disappearing from the streets of Moscow and the Russian police thought they were being kidnapped and shipped off to the Middle East and cut open as organ donors. 
Um, now, I have kids, and I, my children were old enough at that point to be organ donors. Mm. And, uh, of course, I was horrified. Mm. Um, and I couldn't stop thinking about those children. So that um, I realized this was not a this was not a romance novel, um, and I wanted to do a medical thriller. Um, up till then, which is odd, I'm a medical doctor. I had never done a right. medical novel um, because I thought, well, it's my day-to-day -day job. Yeah, okay, I save lives, but it's rather humdrum. You know, you just so you were still practicing when you wrote. Books. Yes, yes. So um, anyway, that was that was harvest. Yeah, and 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 you brought your medical uh, expertise and knowledge. And and now, uh, however many years it is, is later, ninety six, twenty yeah. something years later, do you still remember everything, everything from your medical background? Or do you have to do research? Or I still do research. Yeah. yeah, and medicine changes so I suppose, quickly. Yeah, yeah, the drugs change. Um, the theories about uh, the. the the types of, of organisms that are, well, COVID, <laughs> yeah. that always changes. Which so, is a reference to in the new book, but it's, it's, it's very slight. The yeah. Well, I won't talk about what it is, because it's a, perhaps so, a bit of a spoiler. Yeah. So uh, we have to constantly do research. And mm. um, if I don't know the answer, I can call up uh, a medical colleague. Mm. I also have, I don't know about you, but I have a large library of reference books mm. in my house. Um, a lot of forensic pathology textbooks. Mm. Uh, no, well, I, I didn't study medicine. I was an audiologist, so I just said the scientific aspects. But it's quite interesting because I don't, I don't know if it was the same for you, but I had to um, unlearn a lot of the things about writing because I used to write medical reports, oh, which are very dry and they're very mm. factual, yeah. and they have to be in the passive voice or the way I wrote them. What they Absolutely. Were. And you know, it was never we we diagnosed, it was all, this person was diagnosed, and so on. And so I had to unlearn all of that when I started writing fiction. Was it, did you find it, that the same? And, um, well, I, I find it, what's relevant is that I used to teach this course for medical doctors who wanted to become novelists. And so every year, Michael Palmer, who was another medical thriller author, and I would teach maybe 100 doctors. They would sign up and they'd come to this writing course. And exactly, that's what we had to do. We had to cause them to unlearn all the things that they had learned to do as medical doctors. Because it's very true, when you're writing a surgical note, you say an incision was made. Mm. And of course, you know, when you're writing a thriller, you say he cut the skin. So <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. very different. Yeah. Um, I, I almost feel that being a scientist is something you have to overcome if you want to become a novelist. Mm. Or perhaps even if you want to get on in life, but that's a <laughs> different conversation. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting because my mum always is your number one fan, not in a Stephen King way necessarily, but um, she always jokes that after reading The Surgeon, which was your 2001 novel in which you introduced us to Rizzolian Isles, as everybody here knows, um, she, my mum often jokes that she read that book and now she thinks she could probably do an autopsy because it was so detailed. <laughs> do you, is that part of what you were saying earlier about you, would, you like to frighten or, sh or not, it's not shocking as such, but it's, a bit, it's visceral, isn't it? It's, it's a, an emotional description of of medical procedures. Well, it's really interesting because I, I have been accused of being a violent writer. Really? That I have violent, but they're not. They're really no. not violent books at all. Um, and I think part of the reason is that I can put some distance between me and this shocking thing that has happened. Uh, my investigators walk into the scene after the violence has happened. So mm. you don't actually see the violence, mm. but what you see is their mental re, uh, recreation of what went on in this room. Uh, and the other thing is that when they're there, they have to do a job. 
Mm. And uh, that takes you, it gives you some space from the horror that has happened in this room. Mm. Um, and I feel that way about autopsies as well. Yes, it's, you know, if you're just standing around looking at it, it's quite shocking. But if you're there trying to find an answer, you are there more as a scientist. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a medical doctor, I've been in a, a situation where somebody is bleeding to death on the table. And that, that is really quite a, a horrifying scene because there's blood flying everywhere mm. and you're getting splashed with it. Um, but the surgeons don't have time to be horrified. Mm. They are there uh, elbow deep in blood just doing the plumbing. They're essentially trying to find where the leak is. Mm. And when you have that task at, at hand, you don't have time to be horrified. You are just there to do your job. And that's, mm. that's how I, I treat this, um, I guess what you'd say, fairly gruesome scenes. It's, mm. it's, you're there to do a job, and somehow it takes mm. away some of the shock. And I suppose there is a parallel there, isn't it? The way that, the way that um, cops, for want of a better word, detectives, investigators, approach a, a puzzle. <laughs> must be similar with the way a medical doctor approaches a puzzle in terms of a set of, of, of um, symptoms and trying to figure out what's going on and what happened. And yeah. It must be a fairly similar way of... It's not that much of a leap, I suppose, to, to draw those... I think if you're emotionally involved, you become less... Um, effective as a doctor. Mm. And that is why we are always told we, we never treat our family. We never treat people mm. that we have an emotional attachment to. Mm. You do not want to ever treat your own child mm. because you cannot do an effective job. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so as I said, in, within the surgeon who introduced us to Rosalian Isles, was that, were you aware you were starting to write a series that 21 years later you'd be right, talking about the 13th book? I had no idea. I, when I wrote The Surgeon, it was a, it's a medical thriller. I, I, I thought of it as a medical thriller um, because it is about a woman surgeon um, who's being pursued by a, a killer. Mm. Jane Rizzoli is just a secondary character in there. She is, um, she is the partner of, the main, of one of the main characters. Um, and I did not think Jane Rizzoli was going to survive that story. Um, I, I, in fact, I had sort of her death scene planned way ahead of time. And if you ever read The Surgeon, you'll get to that scene and you'll know which scene I'm talking about. Um, and that's one of the reasons she's not very likable in The Surgeon. I didn't think I needed to make you like her because she was going to die. So uh, those of you who think she's kind of a bitch, yeah, she is. Uh, but as I was writing the story, and, and this is the way, I don't, I don't plot things out ahead of time. I don't do character sketches ahead of time. I get to know the characters as I'm writing them. And one thing about Jane was I knew a couple of things. She's, she's not attractive. Um, she's the only woman in her homicide unit, and, which is very realistic for the city of Boston. Um, and she's always felt like the ignored sister. So as I was writing the story, she, yes, she was bitchy, but I began to understand why, why she had this chip on her shoulder. And by the time I got to that death scene, I couldn't kill her. So, <laughs> so she survived. Because you, because you liked her. I like, well, I admired her. To die. <laughs> but partly that. <laughs> but I, I admired her. I realized that she had come, you know, she, she had this... This, uh, this drive uh, to achieve, to solve the crimes, and even though you might not like her, you had to admire her. Mm. So then I wanted to find out what happened to her, Jane, next, and that's why I wrote the second book. And in the second book, I introduced Dr. Maura Isles as a medical examiner, again, a secondary character. Mm. But she, I was curious about her, I didn't understand who she was, so I wrote a third book, <laughs> The Sinner, to find out more about Maura Isles. And 
that's how I got a series. It's, it's always been going back to the characters. That's mm. always why I would write the next book, because I wanted to find out where were they, did they ever find happiness, did they fall in love, mm. what happened to them. So it's, it's just like checking up with your old girlfriends and finding <laughs> out what's the latest on their lives. Oh, I was going to ask, actually, I mean, do, do those two women in particular, do they feel real to you? Do they feel like you could almost pick up the phone and check in with them? I, I do. I really do. Um, Maura Isles is very much like me, so I understand um, really deep down what kind of a person she is. Mm. <clears throat> and Jane Rizzoli is like the opposite of me. <laughs> um, in fact, the, the showrunner who created uh, the Rizzoli Now's television show, she said, reading the books, she understood what I was really going for. She said, you've written about Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. <laughs> and I, I thought about it and I realized that there's some truth in there. Uh, yeah. You know, Jane Rizzoli is the impulsive Captain Kirk and Maura Isles is the thoughtful and logical Mr. Spock. Mm. But you like, do you, do you have a favorite? Um, <laughs> if one of them is, no, I wouldn't ask that. Yeah, I, 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 if one I, of them is going to die, who would it be? <laughs> Well, or maybe not, they do, no spoilers. I, I don't know. Well, they haven't died yet. But um, Maura Isles, I don't say I have a favorite, but Maura Isles is definitely me, which sometimes is tiresome. So I find her a little boring because I know exactly how she thinks. <laughs> so she doesn't intrigue you as much as a writer? No, uh, no, yeah. no. So you, you didn't, you don't have, you, you didn't have their arcs planned out, the 13 book so far. No. Arc. It was very much you feeling your way into them and seeing what happened to them and, and seeing them evolve, I suppose. Yes, and I think that's one of the, maybe the secrets for a long-running series, mm -hmm. is that you allow your characters to evolve. You allow surprises that come up in their life, just like in real life. Um, and the other thing is having this, this wide universe of characters that can help shoulder the story as, mm -hmm. as a series starts to mature. Um, so I didn't expect that Jane Rizzoli would ever get married or that she would have a child because mm. she certainly didn't seem like the kind of woman uh, in the first book, but she does. Because she's become much more sort of mellow and likable and yes. a nicer person, for want of a better word, over the years. I think it's because she is happy now. Yeah. When she started off, she was unhappy, and I think unhappy people, they, that unhappiness rubs off on you. Um, so now that she is more content, you being with her yeah. because you know she she's more contented with life she's she's happily married yeah. um, and um, but you know there are always conflicts and that's that's what makes these series interesting mm. the other conflicts that come up and you don't you don't know where they're coming from mm. until you write them <laughs> and uh, just to go back to something you said earlier it intrigues me that you say you don't plan the books out because especially I mean I, I've read the new one is to be twice now, and I'm in, I'm in awe of that idea that you didn't plan it out. No, and um, it leads me to have really difficult first drafts because okay. I'm always I'm always feeling my way through things, and you know the example I like to use is is that um, I wrote a book called Vanish about um, well, it's based on a real um, article from the Boston Globe about uh, a woman who's found dead in her bathtub. Mm. Um, she zipped into a body bag. And she sent to the morgue. And a couple of hours later, she woke up in the body bag. So I read this article. I thought, oh, there's a book. That's the beginning of a book. Um, and I started my first draft of Vanish with a, a man in the body bag. Uh, Maura Isles is working in the morgue. She hears a noise. She opens up the body bag, and his eyes pop open. 
Um, and so she sends him to the hospital where he does something completely unexpected. He grabs a security guard's gun, he shoots him, and he takes hostages in the hospital. So it became a hostage crisis. Yeah. And so, so up to that point, I was just writing away merrily, thinking, oh, I've got a hostage crisis now, this is exciting. Um, and it also helped that Jane Rizzoli was one of the hostages, because she's, she's there in active labor and about to have her baby. Um, and I got halfway through that story, and I didn't know why he was in the body bag, I didn't know why halfway he was killing through. people. Halfway through the book, I still had no idea where this story was going. Yeah. Um, and when that happens, I call it plot block. Mm. Um, you don't know what you're doing. Um, so I have learned that this happens with every single one of my books. <laughs> and um, the way I, I deal with it is I just walk away from the story for a while. Mm. Um, and you know, when your mind is, is occupied with other things like driving a car or, or washing the dishes, it's actually still working mm -hmm. on this, on these, these plot issues, and um, somewhere in the middle of a long drive through Texas, I got the answer. I got the solution, and it's it's that wonderful moment when the light bulbs go off in your head. And you feel like this light has just, you know, just is is pouring down on you. The light of it's true, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, the revelation um, never happens at the desk. No, in, yeah, it when never happens at the desk, right? Yeah. Um, so I realized the reason why I was. I was having trouble. I was bored with my story, even mm. though it was um, a very exciting <clears throat> hostage crisis. And the reason I was bored was that um, it was a man who had taken these hostages in my story. Right. And it's always men in real life who take hostages. It's never women. So it occurred to me, what if I made it a woman? Mm. It switches everything around. Suddenly it becomes weird. And it then be you're forced to go to a different place. And then, yeah, you go to a different place. You realize that if a woman is doing all these things, it must be because she's terrified. Why is she terrified? And from then on, the story kind of went forward. Mm. So that's, that's how it always works with me. I take the time to back away from the story, let the brain work on it, um, sort of in the subconscious, and then wait for the light bulbs to go off. Mm. And, then, and then you carry on. And, and then I carry on. Yeah, and I suppose then, then you, in the second draft or later, you must then obviously go back and put the pieces in and then, because you then know the, the solution to the puzzle. Yes, and yeah. that's true for this one too. I think I probably, that probably put it aside for, I don't know, three weeks before I realized what was really going on in the story. Yeah. It's an astonishing, but we'll, maybe we'll, we'll come on to talk about that. Um, listen to me now, because I, I think it's an, I, I absolutely loved it. An astonishing book, um, and it's quite interesting because you've introduced an amateur detective in this one, haven't you? <laughs> Who yes. I, I, I actually I like her a lot. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about that? Angela Rizzoli has been in the series from the very beginning. She's Jane's mother. Um, and again, this, this, this goes to the this, this sense of evolution of characters over time. So when she's first introduced, she is a happily married housewife and mother. She's raised three children, um, and she feels fulfilled. And I think around book four or five, her husband falls in love with another woman and leaves her. And so now Angela is, um, you know, she's, she's about to be single. She's still living in the suburban house she's been in for 40 years. Mm. Um, and she's feeling her age, she's feeling like life is passing her by, and she spends a lot of time mm. looking out her window. But the real genesis of this story was a voice in my head, and, and I find this is true a lot of the time, that stories are launched by kind of hearing somebody talking to you. Um, and in this case, I heard her say in her Bostonian accent, 
If you see something, say something. And I thought, what is she seeing? Is, is that a phrase that you see? Because we, we have, we have what's see it, say it, sort it, don't we? Is that what we have? Yeah, it's a very American phrase. It's a similar phrase. kind of... Yeah, it's, and in fact, if you, yeah. if you land at the Boston airport, you'll see signs of it. If you see something, say, say something. something. Yeah. Um, and it has to do with you find abandoned luggage or something. Yeah, yeah something we all know what that is. Or, yeah. so, um, so I thought, what is she seeing? What is she looking... She's looking out a window, and, um, and I thought, she is clever. She's a woman who has been underestimated all her life. Mm. Um, she's raised this really wonderful, brilliant detective. She must have something that mm. she's passed on. Um, and so I wanted to, to really dive into Angela's life, but also explore the mother-daughter relationship between Jane and her mom. Um, I, I know that you know, most, of us, most of us love our moms, but most of us are also annoyed by our mothers. <laughs> and um, and that, it's, that, it's that complicated, very powerful relationship. Well, there's, there's a quote in the book that I've written down because it really leapt out to me. It was, does anyone really look at their mother we're just there as reliable as gravity? Yes. And yeah. I think, to me, this was, uh, on one level anyway, certainly a book about, it felt like it was a book about motherhood and about ageing. Absolutely. Is, the ageing part in particular. So as I get older, and, and I've noticed this, um, I mean, just as a woman myself, as we get older, we get paid less attention to. Mm. Um, it's certainly in America, when you look at Hollywood, you look at American television, everybody looks at the hot young chicks. Mm. Um, if, uh, in fact... I have a book, um, I was asked, asked about this book about possibly an adaptation of, of Angela Rizzoli as a spin-off, and the answer I got from my Hollywood agent was, too many old people. <laughs> um, nobody is interested in old people, particularly older women on television. And that's, that's really disturbing because as we get older, we have this wealth of experience and, and, and knowledge, and yet yeah. we become less important. And also, is, do you think that's true, or is that just TV executives and people in the film and TV industry say, who believe it's true and therefore make it true? I, I don't know. It's, it's a little a bit of both. I think as men get older, they, they sort of gain respect, people pay attention mm. to them, because it's a power thing. Mm. Um, I think all the power, certainly in the United States, is held by older men. Mm. Um, but women start to disappear, and I mm. think that's that, that sense of disappearing into the woodwork that... Um, that is both disturbing, but it also makes us incredibly good detectives and spies. Because <laughs> you can just be invisible. Yes. Yeah, and that presumably, I mean, it's almost not really worth asking, but that's where the title comes from, listen to me, is that, is that Angela in particular, several characters in the book, in fact, but particularly Angela is saying something. Yes. She's seeing something, and she's saying this is, a, without spoilers, because obviously the book has been out a week, two weeks? Yeah, about a couple of weeks. Almost two weeks, yeah. Um, so no spoilers, but she can see something that's going on and uh, no one is listening to her. And that's, you know, that's frustrating. It yeah. is frustrating. And I find that as, I'm, as I get older, I'm starting to focus more on, on older characters, um, mm. and particular older women, because um, you know, we, all, we all read a lot of books with ingenues, and, mm. and movies all have ingenues, mm. but um, in American television anyway, that's not true. And it's, just to go back, it's, 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 it's not true, because we were talking in the green room earlier, we mentioned Anne Cleves and, and the Vera TV series, and the books obviously that that's, that's, that's based on, and that's an older woman detective. And British people, television is people, different. And I hope so. Do you think it is? I'm not I, sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, okay. I'd like it to be. I'm at home and I subscribe to Acorn and Britbox, so I watch <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of British mysteries, and I do find that... Um, 
there's a refreshing honesty about about the faces that I see on British mm -hmm. television. I mean, you you don't if you look at American television, you see these older women. There's um, a lot of them that have have had a lot of plastic surgery. Mm. They try to avoid looking older, so they lose that character that you will will see in um, mm. you know somebody like Judy Dench. I mean, we just don't have that. You don't think that would, no. there would be a Judy Dench equivalent in, no. in the states? Yeah, it's interesting because with with the film before I go to sleep, Nicole Kidman, they have it's also because of Nicole, but they they have to take ten years of everyone's age, even though she when she played that role. Her real age was the age of the character in the book, so she was playing exactly the right. She could have played the right age, but anyway, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yes. But I know you've talked before, haven't you? And you mentioned it earlier about the, the Rosalind Isles uh, TV series, and you, you maybe don't want to <laughs> open that kind of words again. But I know you, you've talked about how they they changed the characters, and yes. certainly physically, uh, to be much more glamorous and dynamic, and you know, and not not the people that you saw in your head. Again, television, American television. Yeah. Um, so, as I mentioned, that Jan Rizzoli is not an attractive woman. And, yeah. and that, that, to me, was like one of the things about her personality mm. that I so liked. We could identify with her because she wasn't glamorous. She was ordinary. Um, and then I got the call um, that we have cast the part of Jan Rizzoli. And in place of this, this ordinary woman who doesn't care about her wardrobe and has messy hair, they cast a six-foot model. <laughs> um, and it's true, Angie Harmon has just the right personality for the part. I thought she was, you know, uh, her character was, was just right for Jane Rizzoli, but you can't get around the fact she really is as beautiful as a goddess. Mm. Um, and then in place of Maura Isles, who I think of as being kind of a, a, a dark, uh, goth kind of character, mm. they... they they cast a beautiful Cold, blonde. Coldly elegant. Coldly elegant. Yes. Now she has. Now she's a beautiful blonde. So that's. It's just the way it is. And, and, and how did you? Or maybe it was easy. I'm not sure. But resist the TV iteration or version of the characters creeping into your work, or was it just yeah. a very like? Was it just a hard brick wall of that? That's that, and this is. Yeah, I, I have. That happens over there, and this happens over here. I have a responsibility to my readers. Mm to keep the characters the way I created them. I think mm -hmm. that if you start to veer towards changing everything um, to make it match the television show, this, people get confused, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think that most readers are able to separate those two worlds. Mm, absolutely, yeah. 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 And just going back to the topic of, sort of being, uh, being a woman and being slightly, as you get older especially, becoming invisible, how, how do you think it is being a female writer? Is it, is it been, has there any particular challenges? I think that in, in terms of the mystery genre, I think we're doing just fine. Yeah. Um, I, I was looking at the statistics for uh, mystery reader, or mystery writers, and I think it's about 50-50. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure that's true for all genres. Uh, certainly with romance, <laughs> it's going to be like 90-10 yeah. <laughs> female. Like, but the mystery genre, I think we're doing mm. all right. And I think that people, um, especially readers, um, don't shy away from women who do crime fiction. Mm. Um, I, and I think that that's partly the, the popularity of the domestic thriller, because that's, that's mm. very much been mm. claimed by women writers. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and, and you will hear stories, won't you, of, of, uh, of men who say they don't read women writers. Oh, yes. That's and true. I just think, well, oh, you're missing out on an awful lot of good stuff there. Well, I have a story about that. So I was, um, I was on book tour for... Um, with, I can't remember which book it was, and we were in a, uh, a shop, and uh, there was a man there, a male customer, who was buying thrillers. 
And my publicist next to me said, why don't you try a book by Tess Gerritsen? And he looked at me and he said, well, I don't buy books by women. Mm. But I looked at the titles he was holding, <laughs> and I know because of my publishing contacts that he was buying books with male names that were ghostwritten by women. <laughs> right. So, I, you know, I, you can't get past that. No. That's just a... Were you tempted to tell him? No. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could. I said, you know, those are that one was actually written by a woman. But, yeah. yeah. And in this, this book as well, you also, again, you touch against, it's not, it's not a huge theme in the book, the Black Lives Matter movement, I felt, as well. That was yeah. Of, so when I was writing this book, we were having the, uh, the Black Lives Matter um, protests, and it was soon after George Floyd had mm. been murdered. And um, the scene is of Jane Rizzoli, um, questioning a young, a 14-year-old black, uh, black boy. And all of a sudden I get to that scene and I realize I cannot write this scene the way I, I might have before. Right. right? Um, because I think we've all become much more sensitized to that. Um, and I think that Jane also is more sensitized mm. to that because now suddenly she's realizing I'm talking to this kid who's, who's afraid of me. Mm. Who knows how things have gone wrong, mm. badly wrong in the he's past. He's 17 in the book, I think. I, I think like he's that. 14. Right. He's a yeah. young boy. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the, the kid's mother is also very sensitized. So she's watching and she's recording the entire thing. So it's it's current events that mm. um, that just make you more aware of what you know um, the things that you should be doing differently. Mm. And, and that's something that I think crime fiction in particular can really address. It's, I, I mean, I get the sense it's important to you yeah. to address contemporary issues and what's going on in the world. And well, especially the state, obviously, because you're in American writer, but what's yeah. in the world generally today. Well, it's also what, what is happening in the world that, that really upsets you. Mm. And I was, I was very, very upset by George Floyd's mm. uh, death. And I just thought, I can't ignore that, certainly in this story. And I don't want Jane Rizzoli to ignore it. I mm. want her to understand that this boy is terrified mm. because he knows what, what cops can do when, when things go mm. wrong. And I think it, it's done really well, isn't it? There's a, there's a great, you, can, you, you go into her thought process of like, I've got to ask this question because yeah. I've got to ask this question, it's part of an investigation, but I know how this will come across. Yeah. And I know what this young boy and what his mother will think of me as a, as a white woman asking this question. Yeah, and, and I know that she's looking at him and she's thinking, up till now we've, uh, we've developed this, this rapport, and then she has to ask, where were you last night? Mm. And she gets that sense of he's just suddenly pulled back. Mm. Yeah, he's, um, he, he's, he, now mm. he thinks of her as the enemy. And that's uh, that moment again, no spoilers, but when he helps her out, and he says, if I do this, I'm not a hacker. <laughs> it doesn't mean that, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm gonna, the next thing I'm gonna be, you know, jumping into the mainframe of the government or something. Um, but Maura has a surprising uh, revelation in this book, doesn't she, as well, and, and, um, in that she's a very talented pianist. Well, we've always known Maura was a pianist. Um, we just didn't know how good she was. Mm. Um, and again, that's taken from my own life because I, I grew up playing the piano. And I have a lot of doctor friends who belong to um, orchestras. They are doctor orchestras, and, and uh, they, everybody who plays these orchestras is a medical person. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, that makes sense. Maura might, might be a soloist in a, mm. in a concert that's <laughs> purely amateur um, players. But what the revelation that came to me as she was preparing for this concert was I pulled something out of myself that went into Maura, and then, that is... She's terrified of public performance. Mm, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's afraid of making a mistake. Mm. She's, um, she's afraid of being anything but 
perfect. Mm. Um, and this is a this is really kind of a terrible curse that she's she doesn't like to be seen as imperfect because it's a it is a weakness. Mm. So because of that, she doesn't tell her friends she's playing in this performance. Mm. And Jane feels personally uh, <laughs> slighted. She feels slighted that she doesn't know. Um, and it's as I was writing that, I, I thought that's a revelation about myself. Mm. Um, I, I know that about myself that I, you know. If I have to go perform somewhere, I won't tell my my friends and family. Really? Yeah, I don't like I don't like apart them from just... apart from in front of four hundred well, people. I... <laughs> it's going to get out. <laughs> right, but um, and is that is that the piano as well? Or did you did I hear you earlier saying you you play violin? I, I do play the violin, right, but, but it... purely 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 amateur. Okay, yeah. yeah, I bet you're still great then. <laughs> I get the sense that you're not. You're still great. There's a lovely line in the book. It's a shame you chose cadavers instead of Chopin. That one of Maura's colleague says to her, and, he, and she replies, next lifetime, that's for the next lifetime. Yes. So is that for your next lifetime? I don't know, but you know what's amazing is that I love the fact that, I mean, that um, we can have multiple, multiple careers in our lifetimes mm. now. I, was, I read somewhere that the average person in the Roman Empire lived to be about 20 to 25. Oh God, I hadn't even got started at that so th Yeah, so they had more time for one, yeah. one occupation, but here the human you know, lifespan is up to 81, just think we can have four occupations yeah. in that time. Yeah, and as novelists, we can, we can have many more books, we can just... Pretend we're something else, yeah. yeah. Um, how do you creatively recharge yourself? Because 31 books over at least, well, we, we think, we're not sure, 31-ish books over 30 years, that's a lot. You must love writing. But there um, are there days when you don't? Yes. We were just talking about this earlier. Sometimes we hate what we do. It's a, you're banging your head on the desk because you don't know what comes next. Um, I think what happens, I will finish a book and I will be exhausted and I think that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm not going to write. And then an idea yeah. shows up and you think, oh, I wonder what happens next. So that's the best part of storytelling is when that first idea mm. comes to you and then it looks like it's going to be a wonderful book, the best book you've ever written and, and, and you have all this all these hopes and dreams. It's like you know you, you have a newborn infant and you think this kid's going to be president, right? So you have this idea that this is going to win the Nobel Prize um, and, and then reality sets in and you realize you have no idea what you're doing. So um, uh, that's that's really what it is. It's, it's ideas that hit you and make you yeah. Just want to tell a story. And did I read that you weren't necessarily anticipating there being a thirteenth Rosalia in our book? That after twelve, that might have been it. Yeah. Um, remember how Conan Doyle killed Sherlock Holmes? Mm. Yeah. So there are times when I feel that way. I Just want to send my characters up. over Reichenbach Falls. <laughs> um, you get you do get tired of them after a while. It's it's like being with friends. You've been with them too long. Um, mm. You want to take a break. So I do. I did take a break. I I wrote two other books mm. in the meantime between twelve and thirteen, um, and those books probably if any of you I don't know how many of you read The Shape of Night. You probably thought, what the heck is she doing now? <laughs> it, was, it was an erotic ghost story. Um, and it's highly recommended. <laughs> Whether you're into erotic ghost stories or not, it's a, yeah. great, it's a great book. But it was one of these stories, that, and I'm sure that my editors were saying, what is she thinking? And uh, my readers were thinking, what was she thinking? And I was thinking, oh, sexy ghosts. I want to write a story about a sexy ghost. So um, those are the things that, that keep you fresh, that keep you yeah. going, these palate cleansers of novels. Um, because if you get stuck... Um, in this one world with Jane and Maura and Boston crime, 
it can get very tiring and very boring after mm. a while. Mm. So, um, dare I ask what's next, or do you not know yet? I, do I you just, not want to talk about it? Which I, is, I turned it in. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. so you do very much know. I do, next. yes. I, my agent has it now. It's, um, it's not Jane and Maura's story. It's, it's not? It's based on my little hometown in, in, uh, in Maine. I live in a town that has about 5,000 people, so it's fairly small. Mm -hmm. We got our first stoplight 10 years ago. Um, and when we first moved there 30-something years ago, my husband opened up a medical practice. And part of being a doctor is taking a good occupational history. Mm -hmm. So he would ask his patients, uh, what did you do for a living? Because they were retirees. And they said, they'd, always, they'd often say, I used to work for the government. And he'd say, what did you do for the government? And the answer he got back again and again was, I can't talk about it. <laughs> so he thought, well, who are these people? And um, he went to a real, real estate agent, and she said, oh, they're all retired CIA. Um, I live in a town that's full of spies. And I found out later that my little, my little road, which has, has five houses, there was a, a retired CIA on one side, and there was retired OSS, uh, the precursor, um, on the same road. And um, so I began to think, what do retired spies do? <laughs> do they get together and have cocktail parties? Do they talk about their careers? And, um, or do they just stand around and I can't talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wonder. And so I, 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 wa I wanted to write a story about it, a, a little village of retired spies. Wow. And, um, and that, so the story is that there's one woman, a female retired spy, who finds a dead body in her driveway doesn't know if it's related to something that happened 20 years earlier when she was in service. Mm. Um, and she enlists her friends to help her. Um, but the real fun of it is, again, I'm dealing with older people, mm. is the lack of respect that retirees often have mm. by other people. There's, mm. a, there's a young female cop in town mm. who um, doesn't like the interference by these old people, mm. but doesn't realize who she's dealing with. Mm. Um, so she underestimates five spies who have a century's worth of, of, of experience and knowledge. Yeah. So it's, again, it's that conflict between young and old, experience and inexperience, and it's the young people who think they know it all without realizing that, no, I've got the best resource right here living yeah. in my village. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and are you, are you able to, I suppose what I'm asking, are you able to resist your publisher, for example, saying, well, you know, you've got a young cop in this book, so why don't you relocate it and stick and make that Jane Rizzoli? I mean, do they not even dare? Uh, okay, well, I'm going to tell you a story about that. Okay. <laughs> my agent was talking to my Hollywood uh, person, again, talking about Hollywood, and said, yes, Jess, this is great story um, that would make a really good television series about retired spies, and he goes, too old. Yeah. Same story. Too old. Yeah. Can you get some young people into the story? Mm. So uh, again, we're dealing with the same thing. Yeah. 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 Well, I think we probably talked for enough. Well, I have. Oh my gosh. You, you've yes. got more talking to do. But has anyone in the audience got any questions? I was a hand shot up there, uh, very quick. So there is a microphone going around. Yes, it's heading its way towards you. Thank you. Thank um, you. Tess, there's a kind of there's a moral frame there's a moral framework to crime thrillers often, isn't there? Resolution, um, the sort of fight of good against evil. The world seems to be becoming increasingly 
kind of against that moral framework, doesn't it? I was thinking about the Supreme Court ruling yeah. recently, the erosion mm -hmm. of rights. Does writing thrillers therefore become both more important but also more difficult when it's kind of in the context of greater kind of official immorality, do you think? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that thriller writing and mystery writing in general becomes a comfort to us because we do see justice done, whereas in the real world we don't. Um, part of what has been keeping me from writing is exactly that, watching the Supreme Court rulings, watching what's happening in the United States right now, where justice is not being done. Um, and we see everywhere, um, certainly in my country, that things feel like they're falling apart, um, that the world is going in the wrong, our country is going in the wrong direction. So um, I think that we can offer comfort in a sense to our, to our readers and say, yeah, we know what right and wrong is. Maybe they don't know what right and wrong is in Washington, but we do in our hearts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's, that's where it really becomes important is that we try to remind people what is right. Mm. Very good question. Very yeah. Good. They're awfully quiet. They're, they're ready for dinner, I think. <laughs> Hi, Tess. Uh, you say you watch a lot of British television. Yes. What do you like? What should, be, what should we be watching? Yeah, what's any good? Well, you're all, you're all watching Vera, right? Yeah. Vera is so fantastic. And Shetland. You're all watching Shetland, right? Um, and, oh, The Detectorists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who watches The Detectorists? Okay, it's not a mystery, all right? But it, it's one of these shows that would never be made for American television, ever. Not a thousand years. Because it's, um, you know, they're not glamorous people. And those of you who don't know about The Detectorists, you should be watching it. Um, I know it's, it's already, I think there's a new movie coming out with the same characters later on in the fall about a metal detecting club in England. So it's a, it's, it's a group of, of kind of quirky people who walk around the countryside looking for, uh, for Viking hordes. Or <laughs> um, so so that's, uh, those are the films, I mean, I, okay, I watched, I admit, sometimes I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but I, I do watch, or maybe I shouldn't say I'm embarrassed. No. I watch Midsummer Murders. I have watched every single episode. <laughs> and, and so I, I love, I think the, what I call it is comfort crime. Mm. British tele television is very good about comfort crime. You watch it, and the crimes are, are never all that disturbing, and at the end, you just want to know what happens to these people next. Mm. Father Brown, for instance. I always want to know what Father Brown is up to. And I, I'm, I'm not religious, but if Father Brown was, um, was a priest in my town, I would join his church. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have a list of recommendations. So any other questions? Oh, there's a couple back there. In the middle, on my left. Hi Jess. Um, I was the first book I read by you was Gravity, and I'm just wondering where on earth did that come from? Because it terrified me for weeks, <laughs> um, and my mum loves it as well. It's a book that actually helped me and my mum bond through reading. Um, so I just want to say thank you for that book, and uh, thank you for the idea because it, it really got me and my mum into reading, and we both still read your books to this day. So thank you very much. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned Gravity is my favorite book. Is it? It's, it but it's a book that the fewest people read. Mm. And um, it, was, it was inspired because there was an accident aboard the Mir space station. Um, and they had, had, they 
I tried an experimental docking with a progress resupply module, and uh, it went badly wrong, and there was, a, there was a collision. And Mir began to spin out of control, and we had an American astronaut uh, on board at that time, and I remember thinking, we have three dead men up there. And it was quite a terrifying prospect because you're, you're stuck in a tin can and you're dying. And what was almost worst of, worst of it all was um, that everybody on Earth could hear you take your last breath, that, that your, your death was very public. Well, luckily, they, they did manage to survive. Um, but that whole idea of a public death um, bothered me. And then um, it was, I think the same situation was replayed in, um, in that uh, story into thin air about the climbers who went up the mountain and then the, a terrible storm came in and they knew they were going to die. There was no rescue um, at that altitude. And the last thing one of the climbers did was pull out a satellite telephone and he called his wife in New Zealand to say goodbye. Mm. And, um, you know, I think about that last goodbye, and that was, the, that was really the, the impetus for the book Gravity, the last goodbye. So um, I, I took elements of, of the mirror accident and I, put, I set it aboard the International Space Station. And the idea was that there is a biological disaster aboard the space station. Everybody is dead except for one woman, and her husband is on Earth and he does not want her to die. But what do you do? What, how can you save somebody who's 400 miles uh, in orbit? So that's, that's how the, uh, the book came about. It started off as a very emotional premise, um, but of course, because I wanted to make it technically accurate, it ended up, ended up also being quite a, you know, a, a project that I had to do a lot of research for. It was a couple of years of working with NASA just to, to understand how things go wrong in space. You have to understand how things go right in space first. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the real challenge, is, is um, making it seem as if it was possible. So and thank you, you for mentioning that. You, you enjoyed the research aspect. Oh, I had a great time. But, um, this is the fun part about it, okay? So it's, it's getting, a, getting access to NASA was, was the challenge. Right, once you were in. <laughs> um, and here's how I did it. Now, I, under, I understand, I was an anthropology major in college, so I look at people as cultures. So there's a, there's a NASA culture, there's a military culture, I understand the different that they, they don't always get along. So when I called up the, um, the NASA pe the, uh, Public Affairs Office in Na uh, Johnson Space Center in Texas, I said, um, hi, I'm a thriller writer, I want to write a, a book about a biological disaster aboard the International Space Station. Can you help me? And he said, um, tell me what goes wrong in your book. I said, well, everybody dies except for one woman. And he says, um, do you know what the purpose of my office is here? He said, it's to make NASA look good. <laughs> he said, what else goes wrong? And I said, well, I think a spacecraft crashes on landing, killing everybody aboard. He said, I don't really think we want to cooperate with this. Yeah. And I said, wait, wait, before you hang up, everything that goes wrong in this book is not your fault. <laughs> this, NASA does everything right. And he said, okay, whose fault is it? And I said, it's the US military. <laughs> and he said, when would you like to come? <laughs> so that, I mean, just understanding that there's a difference in culture between military space who wants to, they want to, they want to, you know, they want nobody else in space, and the NASA culture, which is all Star Trek people. Um, <laughs> that really, that got me the entree. And once I was in, I was in. Wow, excellent. Yeah. There's another question just about that. Hi, um, how long did you
you run your medical career alongside your writing and what made you finally give it up? And did you have a speciality? Yeah, my specialty was um, internal medicine, which uh, I don't know what the equivalent is in, in British. It's, it's everything you can treat with a pill, essentially. So, you know, it's a lot of hypertension and cancer and, and um, um, things like thyroid disease. Um, I worked part-time medicine, part-time as a writer, part-time as a mom uh, for about five years. So I've been juggling those things. But after I think it was after I sold my second book, I realized that I could probably try and focus on the writing, so I became just a writer and a mom. Um, and my husband, thank heavens, um, understood that this was my passion. Um, and um, ever since then, you know, I've just been a writer. It's funny because when he, um, when, when I said I want to quit, I want to just I'll work on my writing, he thought it was a nice little hobby. <laughs> um, and now he's retired. <laughs> do, do you miss any aspects of? of Medicine. I miss the stories because when you're a doctor, if you spend enough time with your patients, you learn, you hear stories. And the, and the great thing about being a medical doctor is that you, you, get, you get to know people from all walks of life, from, from the bankers to the man who sleeps underneath the bridge. Mm. I mean, it is, you are seeing humanity at its, at its um, sometimes at its most distressed. Um, illness is a great leveler, isn't it? Illness is a great leveler. And, um, um, you know, of course, if you're an obstetrician, you also see people at their very best when they just had their, their first child. And that's, that's a, a joyous thing. Uh, but uh, where I was working, it was a lot of end-of-life care. So you are seeing a lot of tragedy. Mm. Yeah. We probably have time for one or possibly two more questions. One right at the back there. I'm going to stand up. <laughs> um, I'm intrigued by the partnership between Rizzoli and Isles. So often when you have two detectives, one of them either starts out as or becomes the sidekick. Do you have to fight that in keeping those two very feisty women on an even plane, or are you ever tempted to have a sidekick? <laughs> well, I think that it, it's, a, it's a question of balance, and I, I like to give them each a voice, um, every book, one of them probably takes prominence because the story is more personal for her. Uh, as an example, Vanish, um, that's very much Jane Rizzoli's story because she's there and she's in labor and she's a hostage and she's having a baby. So you know that is Jane's story. And then you get to um, uh, The Killing Place um, where we're really following Mora as she's lost in the, in the wilderness in, my, in Wyoming. Um, and her life is, is under threat. So I think it's that sense of everybody gets a chance at center stage. Um, it's hard to keep the balance between two people for a story. Um, so that's, I think that's one way of doing it, is give, give them each a chance to, to be in the limelight. But the other thing about these two women is they really reflect my experience of working in the medical field of women working together for a common goal. Um, when, I, when they were first making the television series, uh, I remember the producers saying, we have not had a story with a female partnership since Cagney and Lacey. Wow. And that was 30 years before. Because at that time, all the, the dual female um, TV shows were all about women's rivals, uh, especially romantic rivals, mm. uh, or backstabbing. Um, and that was not my experience as a, as a medical doctor. It was always women working together. Mm. Um, so I, I, it was it didn't even, it was second nature to me. I didn't even really think about oh this is the new Cagney and Lacey. It was just these two women respect each other. They know that the other one is the best in what she does, and I'm going to rely on her. So somehow that must have struck a chord in a lot of working women. 
And do you think maybe it helps that they're not they're not both detectives, they're not both medical examiners, yeah. they're, they're in complementary, they both are working towards the same goal often, but That's right. not in the same... They don't get in each other's way. Yeah. Um, and of course there's a lot, there is conflict between them because they're very different. Um, Jane being upfront and, and quick to say what she thinks and Maura being much more reticent. Um, and the other conflict, of course, is that they have their different points in their lives. Because Maura, um, and I get more mail about Maura's romance life than anything else. Um, and trust me, I did not plan this ahead of time. It says when that priest appeared on the page, <laughs> and he was very good looking, I thought, well, I'd be attracted to him. So. Um, and, and so Jane doesn't understand this. Why are you with this unattainable man? Well, I know women who do that very intelligent, brilliant women who fall in love with the wrong man, or they fall in love with a married man. Um, and you think, you're so stupid, and yet, in real life it happens. We're probably technically out of time, but maybe if, it, if it's a quick question, we can probably squeeze that in. If not, we'll... Is there another question? Oh, there's one down here. I could keep talking for hours, to be honest, so someone might have to haul us off the stage. Uh, with all of your experience, how would you go back to... Uh, based on that experience, rewrite some of your early novels, and or how has your craft changed over the years? Um, I think that the real thing that's changed is that I have become comfortable with my process, my really terrible, you know, it, my creative process is so, um, it's so anarchic. You, I, I, I had a terrible second book syndrome where I could not write the second book because I kept thinking, I don't how, know how I did it the first time. Um, but what I've learned um, mostly is, first of all, listen to the voice. Um, if you hear a character's voice talking to you, that's a gift, let that voice take over. Um, and it, it doesn't happen with every book. Um, it happened with this book. But sometimes you just hear a voice and you just, you just relax and let it tell the story. Um, the other thing I've learned is to be accepting of imperfection in that first draft. And that is, I think, what I really um, came to appreciate as being the way to keep on writing books. Otherwise, you'll get blocked. Um, and I think the other thing is that I, I have paid more attention to emotional um, impulses for me in the stories. If I can feel some kind of a, a very strong feeling, I know that I'm on the right track in this story. If it turns into some kind of an intellectual puzzle, that's not very interesting to me. So it's, it's really paying attention to what your feelings are and listening for voices. Great, I'll probably be in trouble if we carry on, although I'm tempted to. Um, <laughs> okay. We probably need to call it a day there, so thank you well, so thank much you. just for such a brilliant book, Tess. I've really enjoyed uh, reading it and talking to you about it. And will you join me in thanking the Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.